Gresham College presents Changing Money, Communities, Longer-Term Finance and You by Ian Harris, Director of ZYEN Group. Um, thank you very much and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm honoured to have been invited to deliver this third and final guest uh, Gresham lecture um, in this, the series entitled Beyond Crisis. And this lecture, as Michael said, is entitled Changing Money, Communities, Longer-Term Finance and You. Now, uh, when my partner uh, Janie, who's uh, sitting down there, uh, and I travel in the developing world, um, it's long been our habit to take a healthy supply of basic ballpoint pens with us to give as gifts to children as a small contribution towards their education and therefore uh, development. Now, we learnt many years ago that simply handing pens to children at random is not an educational gift at all, but it is a gift akin to money. The ballpoint pen is a valuable commodity, which can be exchanged for other more instantly gratifying items, such as sweets, or perhaps even cash. Uh, in recent years, we preferred to give the pens through schools, uh, where we're more confident that the teachers will ensure that the children actually use the pens themselves for educational purposes. Uh, now, when we went to Ethiopia a few years ago, ago we, we struck gold um, in a Karo village in the South Omo Valley. The government had just built the village its first school, which was due to open later that year. But the government had run out of money for the project before providing consumables to the school. The elders had been wondering how they would be able to equip the children for the start of school. So our arrival with a gift of 100 pens was most timely. The chief of the village, uh, you can see him here, hastily arranged a ceremony for the gift. Once we had ceremoniously handed over the pens, he embraced me, he spat over my shoulder three times, and through our guide explained that we were now honorary members of the village. Now, while we were being given a guided tour of the village, the chief ran off into the bush with these valuable pens to hide them for safekeeping. Uh, don't be alarmed by the guns in the photograph, by the way. Um, in the South Omo Valley, the tribesmen carry them around as an adornment and more or less treat them as currency in much the same way as in many cultures they use jewellery or gold for that purpose. At least that's what the tribespeople told us. Um, now, at the end of our visit, on learning that we were heading to see the market in Turmi, one of our hosts, or I should say one of our fellow villagers, asked us to give a lift to one young man who had kin in Turmi and wanted to visit them. Naturally, we agreed, and we had a very interesting conversation through our guide with this young man. Uh, our passenger wondered how much cattle we owned. Uh, our guide explained to him that we don't own cattle. Uh, so the passenger then asked how many other types of livestock we owned. So our guide broke it to him gently that Ian and Janie own no livestock at all. The passenger said that he felt sorry for us. He hadn't realised that we were poor people. Our guide tried to explain that we were not considered poor people in our own society. We simply come from a society where wealth is not measured in livestock. Uh, but the young man by this time was convinced that he was travelling with lowly folk uh, and that he'd embarrassed us by asking awkward questions. So that particular conversation ended. Pens, guns, and livestock. Well, in the South Omo Valley and in many other parts of the world, such items are, to all intents and purposes, money. Of course, tribespeople do use Ethiopian currency to some extent, but they only have limited use for it. Now, money is strange stuff. The economist and monetary systems expert Bernard Leterre says, Money is to people as water is to fish. 
and that it is such an intrinsic part of our environment that we hardly notice it. We rarely ask how it works or reflect upon the way it shapes our lives. I shall spend the first few minutes of this lecture trying to define money and setting out the basic economic meaning and history of money. I shall also explore briefly the psychology of money so we can start to understand why we find it so difficult to make choices about using money. But the bulk of the lecture is about the way the use of money is changing. So I intend to spend more time looking at various money systems, past and present. I'll discuss the way those systems have evolved, and in particular, how I see money systems evolving in the future. Now, when I was a callow youth, with very little money of my own to speak of, I was encouraged to recite the following rhyme about money. Money is a matter of functions for, a medium, a measure, a standard, a store. But these days, more commonly, people are told that money has three properties. Money is a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. In fact, modern authors are coalescing around medium of exchange as the only essential quality of money, with some forms of money working better than others as units of account or stores of value. Now, perhaps we can shape our definition of what is monetary by thinking first about forms of exchange that are non-monetary. Gifts, for example. Most historians now believe that ancient non-monetary societies tended to rely on gift economics, especially when transacting with each other in close-knit communities. Direct barter was sometimes used as a means of exchange, but only rarely and usually between strangers. Even in the modern world, most families operate an informal gift economy, within the nuclear household at least. In the South Omo Valley, where Janie and I became honorary tribesfolk of the Caro community with 100 timely ballpoints, Janie was treated to a face painting. This was intended as a gift and received as such. In any case, I think we can conclude that neither gift economics nor direct barter qualify as money. Neither can really be described as media of exchange and neither qualifies as a unit of account or a store of value. Early civilizations soon moved towards the use of commodities for exchange. At least 5,000 years ago, Mesopotamian people were trading using barley, silver, copper, and latterly bronze. Written records of legally enforceable monetary debts go back at least 4,000 years to ancient Babylon. Early money was commodity-based. The Mesopotamian shekel was a specific weight of barley. Until comparatively recently, most money values have been based on weight. The dual meaning of the word for Britain's currency, the pound, is no coincidence. One pound weight of silver used to denominate one pound in monetary value. That value dates back to King Offa of Mercia in the 8th century, who issued a pure silver penny, 240 of which would weigh one pound. If you have ever wondered why in pre-decimal currency days there were 240 old pennies to the pound, now you know why. Now, money is, in effect, a medium of communication. My good friend and colleague, Professor Manelli, covered this idea in some detail in his November 2008 lecture, It's a Mad, Bad, Wonderful World, a Celebration of Commercial Diversity. I commend that lecture to you, but I still humbly suggest that you stick with today's lecture for now. The economist Harold Innes suggested that the shape and durability of a society is affected by the media that people choose. 
He divided media into two types, space-binding and time-binding. For example, space-binding papyrus of the Greek literature and time-binding stone of the Egyptians' monuments. Money as media was further developed by Innes' student, Marshall McLuhan, the man who coined the phrase, the medium is the message. McLuhan makes the following remarks about money. Money, like writing, speeds up exchange and tightens the bonds of interdependence in any community. It gives great spatial extension and control to political organisation, just as writing does or the calendar. It is action at a distance both in space and time. I think this analysis helps to cement my preferred definition of money. Money is a medium of exchange across space and time. In its capacity as a unit of account, it enables people to transact across space. In its capacity as a store of value, it helps people to transact across time. Now, unfortunately, we humans are not good at making intertemporal choices and decisions. The word intertemporal means something that occurs across time or across different periods of time. And many of the more important personal decisions people make are long-term, such as pursuing more education, purchasing a home or saving for retirement. Yet, individuals, organisations and governments tend to struggle to make sound long-term choices, usually favouring and justifying short-term gains over longer-term planning. One of the reasons people tend to find money a difficult subject to understand is because of money's inherent intertemporal nature. As Eric Lonergan points out in his thought-provoking book, Money, money itself is an intertemporal contract because it is a store of value. It does not expire. We assume it will be accepted as a means of payment in the future. In other words, whenever we spend money on anything, we are making an intertemporal decision. Do I spend this money now, or do I defer that spending for an alternative purchase, to save it for a rainy day, or maybe even for the rest of my life? Now, there has been extensive psychological research into intertemporal choices, but most of that research has been conducted upon, with all due respect to most people in the audience, uh, and indeed to myself, the weirdest people on earth. Henrik Hein and Noren Zion point out in their study of that name, that most broad claims about human psychology, cognition and behaviour in the world's top journals are based on samples drawn entirely from highly educated segments of Western societies, members of Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic societies. In other words, weird. They are among the least representative populations one could find for generalising about humans. So are these intertemporal choice and self-control problems merely maladies for the rich Western educated folk? I think not. In recent years, Sendil Malinathan and others have been researching fruit, vegetable and flower vendors in Chennai, India. Most vendors pay extremely high interest rates to money lenders just to be able to trade. This interest can often equate to about half of their income. Such circumstances are often described as poverty traps. Yet, those Chennai vendors typically buy a couple of cups of tea during the trading day, despite the fact that they could become debt-free in about a month, thus doubling their take-home income simply by abstaining from one of those cups of tea each day for a single month. A minority of Chennai vendors have the self-control to escape this particular poverty trap, but the majority persevere within it. Malinathan argues that uh, scarcity, of which poverty is one example, 
causes a unique pattern of psychological responses to intertemporal choices, essentially non-optimal choices or bad allocation decisions. Further, extreme scarcity is maintained or even exacerbated all too easily in environments where a small deficit of self-control makes all the difference. Now, many weird people like me balk at the idea of such inequality and unfairness in society. Yet, we naturally expect some return or rate of interest if we deposit some money in the bank. It's only reasonable. So at what level does a rate of interest or return on money cease to be reasonable and become instead usurious? Now, Bernard Leterre in The Future of Money points out that we believe that interest on money is somehow intrinsic to the process, forgetting that for most of history that was definitely not the case. In fact, all three religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, emphatically outlawed usury, defined as any interest on money. Only Islamic religious leaders still remind anyone of this rule today. Leterre helpfully points us towards three main consequences arising from the way interest underpins the money system. Encouragement of systematic competition between participants in the system, which means by which Leterre means unhealthy levels of competition at the expense of cooperation. Concentrating wealth by transferring wealth from the have-not majority to the increasingly rich minority of haves. And thirdly, a requirement for endless economic growth to sustain the system. Now, I do not subscribe unequivocally to Leterre's views on this matter. Of course, excessive competition, inequalities and growth are bad things. But reasonable levels of all of these things can surely be a force for good, not for ill. Still, Leterre makes pretty strong charges against the monetary system, and I do believe that it is unhelpful for our society to presuppose that there should be a risk-free return on money. A risk-free return on money can only come as a result of wealth transfer from have-nots to haves or from perpetual growth. Now, Thomas H. Greco, Jr., in The End of Money, makes similar points and develops the point about economic growth further. As Greco points out, you simply need to take a single dollar. It's my only prop for the evening, like this one and places in a savings account for 50 years. What do you have? Well, assuming an interest rate of 6% a year, you'd have $18.42. It's amazing, isn't it, how money can grow? And even more amazing, if the interest rate had been 10%, you'd have $117.39. How can this be? Well, that's the magic of compound interest. By leaving the interest earnings in your account, you earn more interest on your interest. Further, the linkage between compound interest and economic growth is intriguing. In the future of money, Bernard Leterre says, the rate of interest fixes the average level of growth that is needed to remain in the same place. This need for perpetual growth is a fact of life that we tend to take for granted in modern societies and that we usually do not associate with either interest or even with the money system. And Greco in The End of Money goes further. He says... Those who recognise the impossibility of perpetual exponential growth and who understand how compound interest is built into the global system of money and banking expect that there will be periodic bubbles and bursts, each of increasing amplitude, until the system shakes itself apart. 
Now, I temporarily abandoned our brief romp through the history of money at that early form of money known as commodity money. The next stage in the development of money was representative money, where a coin, token, or even a certificate might be exchanged, but that representative money would be backed by a fixed amount of the commodity. So an early pound note, for example, would be issued only by the holder of exactly one pound of silver to back the note. In his treatise on money, John Maynard Keynes described this form of representative money as managed representative money, to distinguish it from fiat money. Now, fiat money is a different kettle of fish altogether. It can be defined as money that does not derive its value from the backing of a commodity. The money acquires its value through government fiat, or government decree. Indeed, it's not the sort of fiat illustrated at all. By declaring its fiat currency to be legal tender, a government is granting itself the right to create money within its jurisdiction and similarly making it illegal to refuse to accept the fiat currency for the settlement of public and private debts within the jurisdiction of that government. Commercial bank money is part and parcel of the fiat system of money and in some ways preceded government fiat money. Greco quotes liberally from a book originally written in 1909 by Hartley Withers, Fly Fishing. No, I mean, um, it's actually called The Meaning of Money. And the following rather sums up the story. Some ingenious goldsmith conceived the epoch-making notion of giving notes not only to those who had deposited metal, but also to those who came to borrow it, and so founded modern banking. Now, let me explain why I think this is epoch-making. But before I do that, I'd like to ask you all a question. How many people in this lecture theatre tonight were brought up to believe that banks basically take deposits of money from people who want to save and then lend that deposited money out to those who want to borrow? That's most of us. And how many people here today still believe that to be the case? <laughs> no hands have gone up at all. Right, I, well, I've got a savvy audience this evening, um, so I'll just spend a very few minutes uh, on this subject to perhaps inform some of you and to remind the rest of you the mechanism through which commercial banks create money. When a bank makes a loan, it does not match that loan directly with a deposit. It simply writes the loan as an accounting entry. Regulators require banks to retain a fraction of their deposits in reserve. But in essence, whenever a bank writes a loan, the bank is creating most of the money represented by that loan. And this process is known as fractional reserve banking. It is the multiple combination of commercial bank money and government fiat money that comprises the bulk of the modern money system. Bernard Leterre describes the emergence of this system thus. As the nation-states became the powers that be, a deal was struck between governments and the banking system. The banking system obtained the right to create money as legal tender in exchange for a commitment always to provide whatever funds governments needed. And he says, if you understand this money alchemy, you have understood the most arcane secret of our money system. Greco explains his concerns about the system clearly by understanding that the fundamental nature of modern money is credit, it becomes possible to liberate and perfect it and to avoid throwing out the more evolved credit money baby with the bathwater of the perverse centralisation of power, the manipulation of the supply of credit money by the banking interests 
operating under the aegis of central governments. You might have come across the term open market operations, which describes the process central banks use to try to control the money supply and interest rates uh, and or inflation by purchasing real assets such as government bonds, gold or currencies in the open market. Now, a fashionable phase of, a phrase arising from the developed world's response to the latest financial system uh, bubble burst is quantitative easing. Indeed, the USA recently started a second round of quantitative easing, uh, known waggishly as QE2. Uh, QE is simply a form of open market operations in which the central bank electronically creates from nothing the money with which it purchases those assets. It is simply added to the electronic books of the central bank. But that newly created money then enters the banking system when those open market purchases are made, thus adding to banks' reserves and thus enabling the banks to lend a great deal of money, potentially far more than the value of the QE injection, by using fractional reserve banking, as I described earlier. Eventually, some of that money might need to be printed to support the extra book money, but it is far more helpful, I think, to, to, to think of QE money as electronic money created by central banks from nothing. So, how much does a dose of quantitative easing actually add to the money system? Well, it, it depends on how much lending and therefore how much additional fractional reserve money results from the central bank injection. In other words, nobody knows. You have to try it and find out. But one thing you very rarely hear about is a dose of quantitative imodium or quantitative constipation if matters get out of hand. And by out of hand in this context, I mean asset bubbles and especially inflation. Now, it's quite hard to find a subject upon which the grand economists John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman agree. But their objection to government-induced inflation as a backdoor way of taxing the masses is one such subject. And another real worry uh, with inflation, of course, is that it does have a tendency um, to, to run out of control. There are many horror story examples, not least Weimar Germany in the 1920s and Zimbabwe in recent years, both illustrated on this slide uh, with a 500 million and a 50 billion note, respectively, uh, both of which I am proud, although not wealthy, to possess. Now, of course, we live in a different era from Weimar, Weimar Germany, um, and weird nations are very different from Mugabe Zimbabwe, uh, but who honestly does not feel a twinge of worry when hearing about quantitative easing or QE2 that it might just trigger an inflationary roller coaster that we simply cannot stop? And even if we put to one side those uh, dystopian hyperinflation examples, uh, most of us in this lecture hall have experienced at least one, if not several, periods of substantial inflation in the, the last 40 years or so that eroded the nest eggs of those who chose to save, while significantly reducing the debt burden for those who borrowed, not least governments. In The Future of Money, Leterre estimates the decline in purchasing power of several major currencies between 1971 and 1996, um, on this slide, I brought the chart up to date and also calculated the results for the most recent 25-year period using consumer price index uh, figures. And it's not a very happy story wherever you come from. Even the best-performing countries, um, such as Switzerland and Germany and Japan, have lost nearly two-thirds of their value in less than 40 years. The pound has lost about 90% of its value. So on the whole, you need £100 today uh, to buy a basket of goods that would have cost you £50 in 1985 or £10 in 1971. And compared with other world currencies, the pound's performance actually is about middling. 
Declining purchasing power is a particularly miserable story if you're in the southern European examples on here, Italy and Spain, and it's ruinous if you're from the Latin American countries quoted, uh, Mexico or, or Brazil. So are there alternatives or at least complementary approaches to money uh, that can improve our financial system uh, or possibly even replace it? I'd like to start this exploration of alternatives at the smaller scale end of commerce, um, the local community. Now, one reasonably popular local approach is a time bank where people can swap hours of each other's time. The Rushy Green Time Bank, operating out of a medical practice in Catford, is one of the better-known examples in the UK. Professor Minelli described Rushy Green succinctly in his 2008 lecture, Local or Global Network Economics and the New Economy, another lecture which I commend to you. Rushy Green is based on the time bank model developed by Dr. Edgar Kahn, initially piloted in the USA in the 1980s. Kahn's journey and its transition across the UK is well documented in David Boyle's book, Funny Money, which comes with the enticing tagline, only our limited idea of money is keeping us poor. That book also contains several good case studies of time-based local currency systems in the USA, including Ithaca Hours, which Bernard Terre also uses as a case study in The Future of Money. The time bank movement tends to distinguish time banks from local exchange trading systems, LETs, but I think it's more accurate to describe time banks as a particular type of LETs. LETs can be defined as locally initiated, democratically organised, not-for-profit community enterprises, which provide a community information service and record transactions of members exchanging goods and services by using the currency of locally created LETs credits. LETs are themselves a form of local currency, of which there have been many examples in the last hundred years or so. One of the best documented examples is the WUR, a local currency for small and medium-sized enterprises established in the 1930s in Switzerland in the aftermath of the monetary squeeze resulting from the Great Depression. Um, Almost indistinguishable from an entity now known as a LETS, the WUR currency is still thriving today. Now, time banks tend to value every hour as equal, whereas other forms of LETs have various ways of computing what currency, including various uses of time, is worth. Locally initiated and democratically organised sounds like a wonderful power-to-the-people motif, and it rings an appealing note with those of us who grew up reading and embracing E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful Ideas. Indeed, the Schumacher Society and its partner organisation, the New Economics Foundation, are excellent sources of information on local and community money, including time banks. Yet, word from the front line of LETS is that organising a currency, even a simple local time bank one, can be very hard work. Many volunteer-based schemes disappear as rapidly or or even faster than they appeared. Very few LETS make a transition from community organisation to influencing significant chunks of local business. But a a waggish adage comparing conventional money with LETS money is that the former is hard to earn but easy to spend, whereas the latter is easy to earn but hard to spend. Today there are about 100 active time bank schemes in the UK, which together with the nascent ones and other forms of LETs comprise a community of about 300 local organisations. Penetration in the USA is similar proportionally, with about 200 time bank schemes and a few hundred LETs. So even accepting the idea that these local schemes are meant to complement, not to replace conventional money, levels of penetration are very low at the moment. Still, 
In hard times, local currencies have had a tendency to spring up and help keep some sort of commercial show on the road. The extent to which such hardship currency really is money is hard to gauge. During the Spanish Civil War, for example, Republicans produced local money in the form of coupons for various purposes. The extent to which some of these schemes can be described as money can be questioned, especially as the coupons often doubled as publicity posters. Of course, in adversity, all sorts of strange things can and do happen. Some Spanish Civil War collectors minted coins rather than coupons and posters. Um, In Austria in the 1930s, the Vogel experiment took off like a storm in the small town of that name, with the local government issuing local scripts carrying a negative interest rate of 1% a month against the town's debts. The Vogel script money circulated remarkably quickly in those circumstances and helped the town's economy immensely until falling foul of regional interests and the Austrian Central Bank. David Birch, in the Digital Money Reader of 2010, points out that the seven-week bank strike in Ireland in the 1970s did not bring the country to its knees. Local people took IOUs from each other and an informal or decentralised system of accepting cheques became an effective shadow currency until order was restored after the strike. Uh, But in the absence of widespread and profound adversity, I personally find it hard to imagine community money being the main or even a major part of our money system, in the weird world at least, for the foreseeable future. However, there are large-scale initiatives for micro-level money, by which I mean individuals, households and very small businesses, which could change the way that most of the world transacts. The M-Pesa, which originated in Kenya, is one of the better documented examples. It was originally intended as a microfinance product, transacted through the mobile phone, but soon people latched on to the potential of having electronic money transferable to and from their mobile phone, and it is now, in effect, the main small-scale banking service in Kenya, with millions of customers. It claims to have recently overtaken Western Union in terms of value of money transferred each day, with over 150 million euros a day being transacted. And there are some intriguing spin-offs as well from uh, this sort of micro-money infrastructure, such as the Kilimo Salama microinsurance scheme. And this enables Kenyan crop farmers to use their mobile telephone as both a form of money and a communications device, enabling the insurance company to keep its cost to a minimum and therefore to keep the efficiencies high. Innes and McLuhan were closer to the mark than uh, they suspected um, when they described money as a form of communications medium now that the communications device and the money medium are becoming so entwined. In fact, some experts believe that the benefits from this low-tech money infrastructure is being reflected in impressive growth and there is potential for much further growth. Fritz Schumacher of Smaller's Beautiful Fame would have loved this sort of intermediate technology had he lived to see it. Um, However, it isn't just intermediate technologies that enable us to imagine brave new money. The internet is a global technology that enables communication, including monetary communication, in ways that people could have hardly dreamt of 30 or 40 years ago. A wave of virtual currencies have emerged through online activities. Daniel Roth in Wired magazine covered this aspect um, expertly earlier in the year. As he puts it, moving money, once a function managed only by the biggest companies in the world, is now a feature available to any code jockey. And Roth goes on to show a vast number of virtual currencies expressed as rates to the dollar, 
although he takes pains to point out that the values are approximate, uh, they're not necessarily pegged to the US dollar, and many cannot be exchanged for cash at all. Uh, and I pr present to you here just a small uh, sample uh, of the exchange rates um, uh, that, he, uh, that he shows. Uh, now, personally, I've never seen Star Wars, but it's refre re refreshing to learn that with my one dollar, I am a Star Wars galaxy's millionaire. Now, the peer-to-peer -peer movement, or P2P, to coin the phrase, regards peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure as an ideal mechanism for changing money, or, as the P2P Foundation puts it, aspects of monetary reform that aim to make the monetary system into a participatory resource that more broadly benefits larger sectors of the world's population. Leterre in The Future of Money takes a very balanced position on where this all might be going. The information age, he says, should encourage the spreading of benefits rather than the concentration of wealth. Information can be more readily shared than petroleum, gold, or even water. And the maximization of choice rather than the suppression of diversity because the informed are harder to regiment than the uninformed. But, paradoxically, the dynamics of information economics could also create an unprecedented concentration of power in the hands of a very few information age billionaires. Now, in my opinion, it is the empowering characteristic of these ideas that make the initiative so exciting and potentially powerful. And while I wouldn't expect to see monetary networking taking off at quite the same rate that we have seen social networking explode onto the scene in the last decade, I won't be at all surprised if we see um, the global monetary system transformed, um, perhaps through a relatively minor variant of the applications and gadgets that are already out there, in much the same way that Apple has transformed the world of music through the iPod and iTunes. Very clever but simple variations of technologies that were already there. Now, possibly the twist that will really transform the world's monetary system will come through the reciprocal trade movement, the modern form of barter. Reciprocal trade today is potentially a massively multiplayer form of barter. The current scale of world reciprocal trade is hard to determine. IRTA, the International Reciprocal Trade Association, claims that over 400,000 companies use reciprocal trade. There are about 600 companies that act as reciprocal trade exchanges, and IRTA also claims that some $12 billion worth of lost and wasted capacity was utilised last year as a result of reciprocal trade. IRTA provides a trading platform, and it acts as a clearinghouse for its currency, known as the Universal Currency, or UC, and that's been around since 1997. Now, it's unclear how much trade goes through IRTA's trading platform and how much uh, its currency is used, but about 100 of the 600 exchanges are members of IRTA. Most of the exchanges seem to be relatively small affairs, although Thomas Greco detects some consolidation. Um, uh, he says firms like IMS, ITEX and Bartercard are buying up a number of small local exchanges and thereby creating larger, more geographically dispersed transaction networks. Also, a new commercial initiative, Recipco, could be a potential major player in this arena. Recipco comprises an online exchange, a currency it calls the Universal Trading Unit, or UTU, and a clearinghouse responsible for issuing and backing the trading currency. What makes Recipco interesting is that it is trying to back the UTU with available bar to trade and the balance sheets of the larger global companies. Now, I personally feel that these ideas are still work in progress. The technology is there to enable the ideas. The aspirations are there to harness global resources more efficiently and effectively, and that must be good for businesses and for good causes. 
Thomas Greco says, um, I firmly believe that the most important value proposition that trade exchanges can offer to their members is the cashless clearing of their transactions. And perhaps that's all that it needs, but my gut feeling is that it still needs a twist or two that hasn't come through yet. The IRTA model has been around for over a decade now, without yet fulfilling its potential. Recipco claims to have a better model and aspires to the sort of unitary scale and functionality that could really change the monetary world. But as yet, I cannot put my finger on the killer atlas that can make such initiatives really sing. Now, perhaps the answer lies in complementary currencies underpinning such systems. Such currencies are by nature by necessity global, and uh, by their nature are, or at least should be, backed by the real commerce taking place on the exchange. And by nature they should, if designed sensibly, avoid the worst excesses of fiat and fractional reserve banking money. Now the idea of a global currency is not new. John Maynard Keynes proposed a commodity-backed international currency named the Bancor at the Bretton Woods negotiations after World War II. And there's been some renewed interest in the Bancor since the financial crisis a couple of years ago, including a recent IMF strategy, uh, strategy document uh, on the new Bancor. Uh, but other ideas have also emerged. Uh, in the Digital Money Reader in two th 2010, Dave Birch reports on one similar idea, a United Nations-backed currency strongly advocated by the Kazakhstan government, which Dave waggishly nicknames the Borat. For many years, Bernard Leterre has proposed a complementary currency, a global reference currency, which he names the Terra. It is defined as a standard basket of commodities and services, ideally reflecting their importance in global trade. It would be convertible into existing national currencies and would also be convertible into its basket of commodities on demand, although there might be a small penalty or fee for conversion. Now, one interesting principle in the Terra is the principle of demurrage, or negative interest. The Terra estimates that it would cost about 3 to 4% per annum to administer, and that would, in effect, be its demurrage level. These ideas aren't entirely new, nor does Leterre make claims to their originality. And if you think about the table I presented earlier, showing the spectacularly uncertain erosion of the purchasing power of money over time, a certain and universally understood demurrage charge would make more sense in many ways than the current monetary system. But where I part company with Bernard Leterre is on the quantum of demurrage. I believe that it should be possible to establish a solid and stable commodity-based system which required only a fraction of 1% per annum to maintain. The purity of Leterre's commodity backedness is possibly that proposal's undoing. And there are other global currency initiatives about. The World Currency Unit, the, the WOKU, is an algorithmic construct designed by the WDX Institute based on the 20 largest national economies measured by GDP, revalued twice yearly uh, based on IMF reported uh, GDP. It can be used to price commodities. Uh, bunker fuel, fuel, for example, is priced in WOKU. And the idea is to help investors and businesses to mitigate the uncertainty arising from exchange rate volatility. In a world where, as Bernard Leterre tells us, 98% of all foreign exchange transactions are speculative and only 2% relate to the real economy, currency volatility is a real problem for real commerce. Indeed, only last month, Overlay Asset Management launched a currency index it claims to be a virtual world reserve currency, based on hedging 15 major currencies. Could this be part of the answer, or is this yet another derivative product designed to reduce risk that simply adds to the froth of our fractured world monetary system? In any case, none of these ideas really seem to address the long-term store of value issue. 
My colleagues at Zien Group, together with a committed group of thinkers and much cooperation from Gresham College, have formed the Long Finance Initiative to ask questions such as, when would we know our financial system is working? How might a 20-year-old responsibly enter into a financial structure for his or her retirement? Or why can't investors safely fund 75 to 100-year forestry projects? As part of Long Finance, Dr. Malcolm Cooper has written a fascinating booklet, In Search of the Eternal Coin, a Long Finance View of History, exploring different views of eternal value over the ages. The Eternal Coin is a Long Finance thought experiment that speculates on whether a coin or some form of money that never loses value could exist. The Eternal Coin thought experiment has produced proposals for coins based on traded currencies, commodities, land, time to depletion of major resources, genetic materials, and intellectual property. Money is both space-binding and time-binding for most societies. The information age has certainly changed the space-binding media aspects of the world probably forever. But perhaps information with long-term or permanent value will also thus change the time-binding media, specifically forming part of our eternal coin, or money as a store of value for future generations. As the journalist Simon Carr remarked, money turns out to be whatever we agree it to be. It's a collective work of our imagination. Thus, the argument goes around in a beguiling circle, defining money as a form of communication or information at the start of this lecture. And by the end of the lecture, I'm concluding that information might, in part, be the ultimate long-term form of money. So where does all this lead us? I'd like to leave you with a couple of concluding thoughts on changing money. Firstly, I think that nation-states will need to think hard about their roles in the future, both as issuers of money and their related role as tax collectors. Taxation models will need to adapt a great deal to accommodate our new local and global world of commerce. Money is only part of that changing world, but it's an important part of it, and money is, today at least, the medium through which most of us are taxed. Now, that needn't necessarily be the case. We could, for example, pay some of our taxes in time money rather than conventional money. Currently, nation-state taxation systems seem to me to be outmoded and a hindrance to progress. Secondly, society needs to address the trust deficit. The public's trust in banks and government's stewardship of our money system has been severely dented in the past few years. I believe this diminished trust to be highly dangerous for the global money system, which depends almost entirely on trust in order to be sustainable. The remarkable thousand-point Dow Jones plunge on the 6th of May this year seemingly caused by one duff trade which triggered a downward spiral of computer-generated algorithmic trading, is a cautionary tale for us. It was soon spotted as an anomaly, but it reminds us that technology can be part of the problem as well as part of the solution. Now, should such an erroneous spiral occur during a period of financial panic, then financial markets and the money system with them could quite possibly grind to the sort of halt that we nearly experienced in autumn 2008 when the financial system came so close to breaking down irrevocably. I don't know anyone who is really confident that the system has been fixed post-2008. In fact, only last month, the other week, Mervyn King, the governor of our central bank, the Bank of England, said, of all the many ways of organising banking, the worst is the one we have today. And he also said, what we cannot countenance is the continuation of a system in which bank executives trade and take risks on their own account, and yet those who finance them are protected from loss by the implicit taxpayer guarantees. So let's take the governor's word for it. The financial system isn't fixed, and it's hard to work out what it would take to convince us that it is fixed and to rebuild our trust. 
And just one final observation on how money affects our psyche. Um, Eric Lonergan in Money concludes, the final property of money, its allure, is equally revealing of human frailty. It cannot be irrational to be attracted to money. After all, it grants us power, freedom, and security. But money also plays on less appealing propensities towards greed, envy, and self-importance. I agree with that statement, and also with Lonergan's other conclusion, which is that money would perhaps serve us better if we thought about it less. In the current financial climate, we tend to give money more attention than perhaps we should. But the last word before announcements, questions and refreshments should go to Aldous Huxley, who said, The instinct of acquisitiveness has more perverts, I believe, than the instinct of sex. At any rate, people seem to me odder about money than about even their amours. Now that thought might make a good conversation icebreaker at the short drinks reception after the lecture, which is at the London Wall Bar and Kitchen just outside the museum. Um, but before questions, ju just a few announcements. I'd like to uh, plug a couple of additional Gresham uh, events on related topics. Um, on the 30th of November at Barnard's Inn Hall, Con Keating will introduce his long finance paper, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, The Future of Pensions. And that evening, also 30th of November, and also at Barnard's Inn Hall, a new economic model for Europe, Building Sustainable Growth, by Dr. Chris Gibson-Smith. And also one for your 2011 diaries, Professor Michael Manelli will further develop some of the themes from this lecture on the 7th of February 2011, here at the Museum of London, um, and that lecture is called Long Finance Transactions Across Time. Uh, and finally, before questions, and aside to um, uh, the CPD, uh, uh, Continuing Professional Development attendees, please be sure um, to see the Gresham uh, people at the table outside uh, before you leave, if you haven't done so already, to record your CPD points or collect your certificates. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.